Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, Who Wants to Live Forever? So this is a little outside the realms of even the loosely bound topics that we explore on this show, but I was at a seminar recently by a philosopher at my college, a guy called Adrian Moore, which posed an interesting dilemma to think about, and I thought my listeners might enjoy a venture into the realms of whatever it is philosophers do all day as well. So here's the scenario. Someone comes along to you and offers you the elixir of life. In other words, they offer you immortality. A particular version of immortality, though. The only condition is that if you choose to drink it, if you choose to be immortal, then you cannot ever change your mind. You can't then die. Instead, you're obliged to live forever. Listening to this offer, would you make the decision right now? I imagine you, like pretty much everyone at the seminar, want far more details than the person is willing to offer at first. The question is so ill-defined, you don't really know how to respond to it. If I'm immortal, am I going to continue to age and enjoy a few years of relative youth, followed by an eternity of being old and decrepit? Will my friends age and die, leaving me as the only continuous entity in my life, a little bit like the Doctor in Doctor Who, doomed to continually lose people by his extremely long lifespan? Do I have to worry about the eventual heat death of the universe? Because we know, from where we stand now, that eventually the unconquerable second law of thermodynamics and the inevitable increase of entropy will result in the universe turning into a lifeless, cold, uninteresting soup, which sounds like an awfully depressing place to spend eternity for the endless stretch of time after even the last black hole has evaporated into hawking radiation. So you want much, much more information before you're willing to consign yourself to some kind of eternal fate, of course. And the philosopher sets the rules for the game like this. Whatever you ask, you can have. You can carry on hearing new Radiohead albums coming out indefinitely. You can continue to live on a planet that isn't ravaged by environmental destruction, or the sun heating up endlessly, and so forth. Your friends and family can continue to be immortal with you, or when you're sick of them, they can be permitted to die, and new friends and associates can take their place. You're allowed to be eternally 20 years old, or 25, or 40, whatever you want. In other words, the definition of immortality that they're going for here sticks quite closely to a never-ending version of the kind of life we currently enjoy. If, of course, you currently enjoy it. There's no need to worry about too many of these things. Whatever you're asking the person granting eternal life, they can answer in the way that makes eternal life seem more appealing to you right now. The only thing they can't do is allow you to escape the definition of immortality. Life has to continue indefinitely. The reason for this, according to the philosopher who gave the lecture, was because otherwise the decision would be far too easy. You could just give immortality a go until you decided that you didn't like it or you were getting bored, and then make your peace and head off into nothingness. And of course, for this to work, you have to accept another precept, which might not be something everyone is willing to accept. But in this scenario, at least, mortality is mortality, and so it ends in death. And death is total annihilation. There's no reincarnation no afterlife, nothing afterwards. You're just unaware, forever, in much the same state as you were before you were born. It's not endless nothingness, it's just the absence of all things, if that makes sense. So there's an interesting sidebar that came into my mind at this point, which is, how do people who are religiously faithful think about the afterlife? Naturally, we have depictions in our minds that are very lurid, spending an eternity in a fiery pit being poked with pitchforks, and or wandering around with angels plucking harps and so on. But I don't think that anyone, or at least not many people, 
really believe that these kind of cultural stereotype pictures are actually supposed to be accurate. I can't really remember how I thought about this when I was a child and therefore vaguely religious. I've sort of been raised in a in a loosely Christian tradition. I tried looking it up in the Christian Bible, but ended up getting frustrated because the main source I looked at, which, to be fair, was an online website that probably wasn't at the height of theological sophistication. But it quoted both Revelations, which implies there's no death in heaven and therefore I guess we're immortal, and Isaiah, which says we all get to live in vineyards and live to be exactly a hundred, as descriptions of heaven, even though what they're describing is kind of contradictory. So I consulted some of my religious friends instead, and we basically came to the conclusion that it's not something that's ever specified in too much detail, or something that people don't necessarily think about in a great deal of detail either. And I think, in all honesty, most people probably assume that the afterlife is something beyond their comprehension at present. After all, in these theories, God is transcendent and unknowable, so why should living with him be something that we can particularly understand or comprehend right now? Instead, the afterlife is an indeterminate thing. And it probably has to be, because I'm sure that everyone gets sick of harp music at some point, or listening to various angels reminisce about their day trips to Earth from thousands of years ago. Whether the concept of time even exists in the afterlife of religious thought is not really clear, and I don't think anything is clear about it. So in summary, we sort of came to the conclusion that in the back of most people's minds, the afterlife is incomprehensible, vague, but good in all the right ways. And maybe it's intentionally vague, because if you try to pin down details, you run into some of the problems surrounding immortality that show up later. But if you have a different opinion, then please let me know about it. I'd be really interested to hear about what people have to say. So returning to the scenario where we're offered immortality or mortality, which of the two is preferable if one could decide on infinite life or eventual utter cessation? Which one do you opt for? Interesting thing for me about this question, this scenario, is that it's not particularly well posed, so the more you think about it, the more questions you come up with to ask the person, the more loopholes you might imagine where you might get around some of the problem by addressing the letter of the question rather than the spirit of it. How vast exactly are your godlike powers in this scenario, for example? If the main problem with immortality is that I might get bored of it or suffer, couldn't I just ask that I'll always find immortality enjoyable and then totally get around any kind of problem? So the question itself is not particularly clear, but I think what's really interesting about it is this means that Everyone who's asked has given me a different answer. Thinking of different variants of this situation can still be fascinating, and I think there's an interesting psychological aspect to how people first react to the question and the type of things that show up for them when they first hear about it. So if you want to send in via the contact form on the website any of your answers to this question, you know, if some of them are good, we might read them out at some point. But I think what's good about it is it provokes a pretty immediate reaction. Maybe you've already thought about what your reaction is, and you've already considered how you might make the decision. For me, even though I'm generally really suspicious of utilitarianism as too easy to think about, I mean, reducing everything to a number is really difficult and naturally extremely reductive. That's exactly what you're doing, is reducing complexity down to a single value. And I think one of the other reasons to be suspicious of that line of thinking is that it implies that everything is fungible. In other words, that you can trade experiences for each other easily. Like you could, maybe you, you get a certain amount of value out of eating an ice cream, but could you trade a love affair for a million ice creams? Or the death of your sibling for a billion to stub toes in terms of suffering? I mean, immediately it gets patently absurd to act like good and bad things in a human life can just be traded. 
as if they're all part of the same commodity. There's some things that can't be exchanged with each other. But if you squint a bit, of course, this kind of thinking does still have its uses for making decisions. So my knee-jerk response was to use it and say that obviously you can't take the risk of immortality because if you find that you don't enjoy it at some point during that immortality, as it seems inevitable that you might eventually get sick of it, then you're risking infinite suffering. At least if I die, I know that after that there won't be anything, there won't be any more suffering. So if my aim, in a crude way, is to minimise my own suffering and maximise my happiness, even though in the classic utilitarian fashion, maybe none of us really know what our own suffering is or what our happiness is and how to maximise them. Immortality is a colossal risk. It just makes that balance sheet so much bigger. Then I suppose a more optimistic person coming to this question would say, that's a good thing. So I presented this quick line of reasoning to the philosopher who said that, well, we've decided that immortality is as good as it can be. Whatever you're worried about will be taken care of, presumably. So you can argue from a utilitarian point of view that by avoiding immortality, you're missing out on infinite happiness. The philosopher pointed out that having given this talk to a great many different audiences, the results were usually the same. A majority of people didn't want to be immortal, while a minority of people went for it. According to the lecturer, there wasn't much of an age-based trend here. If anything, young people were slightly more likely to pick immortality than old people. So you can't really make an argument that there's this self-preservation instinct that we're told is extremely strong. It's obviously not strong enough for people to jump off the cliff into a semi-unknown immortality. Although one of the arguments that one of the philosophers has made about this is that if you're actually faced with death, you would pick another year or another 10 years if you could on any given day, and therefore sort of by induction, you will eventually decide to be immortal purely by deciding that there's no particular day on which you wish to die. I don't really think that holds very well, and I think it's, as to whether it holds or not, it's very difficult to say, isn't it? But I think the issue there is infinity is an extremely large number, and we'll come back to this a bit later. So just saying that people might indefinitely extend their lives is not the same as immediately committing to infinite life. This theme has, of course, been dealt with in fiction. There's countless examples, really, but the two that they pulled out were a Julian Barnes novel and a play called The Macropolis Case, which became an opera. In both cases, the immortal protagonist eventually gets sick of immortality, and things lose all of their meaning. There's no purpose in continuing their immortality. So, naturally, after this lecture, I, I sort of took the usual course of action when I want input on some problem that I have, so I rang up my mum. She rejected immortality on the grounds that if you were immortal, you'd have no motivation to do anything, you could always do it tomorrow. The argument then was that the very finite nature of life is what gives it any meaning whatsoever. On the other hand, my best friend was extremely keen on the prospect of immortality. No matter how much I tried to persuade her that it would be terrible, and eventually anyone, regardless of their intellectual curiosity, would probably grow bored of it. Uh, I had another friend who said that they would choose immortality so that they could spend all of the rest of eternity with a particular other loved one and that before they'd met this person, they might not have considered that. So as the philosophers pointed out, there's clearly a temperamental difference in various individuals that mean that some small minority of people are likely to take up this offer, while the rest of us avoid it. And the professional philosophers have had many stabs at the problem over the years as well. The main one that the philosopher was enamoured with, the guy giving the lecture, was from a guy called Bernard Williams, who wrote an essay on the prospect of eternal life, named after the Macropolis case play. Essentially, the argument goes something like this. There are two things that need to be satisfied for this kind of scenario to play out. 
for me to be immortal? The first is that if I'm going to continue to be me, then there has to be some kind of continuity. All of us are changing and transforming and shifting and altering all the time in our bodies, our minds, in our perceptions of the world, sometimes in wild and exaggerated ways, sometimes more subtly over the years and decades. So if we can't maintain a single coherent identity, a through line, even over the course of a short human lifespan, what hope can we have to do so through immortality? And the second thing is that there needs to be enough variety to keep it interesting. Very few of us can imagine being eternally satisfied by doing the same thing over and over again. You could always, when offered immortality, stipulate that it had to be the kind of immortality where you wouldn't get bored at all. But we know that most of us find repugnant, although we can't explain why quite, the idea of something eternally unchanging. Imagine that I told you I had a machine that would constantly just loop the happiest few moments of your life endlessly, over and over again, on an ever-looping reel, and that for the rest of eternity, you would experience just that instant, just that joy, over and over again, and you wouldn't know that this was happening, so you wouldn't get bored of it. In some sense, what the machine does is make you happy for all eternity. It ensures that you exist and that you're enjoying things for all eternity. I doubt that many people would want me to switch the machine on, because change is an essential part of being human, an essential part of being who we are, an essential part of life as we conceive of it. If I could just transport you to a never-ending loop of bliss for all eternity, I may as well have killed you, right? What's the difference? So here are the two things that are needed to live for a happy eternity. You have to continue to be you, and there has to be enough variation to keep it interesting. And Williams argues that these are basically mutually contradictory. You can't possibly have this variation that would keep it interesting and continue to be yourself. There's a tension between the two things that are required. So the whole scenario is essentially impossible. You'll either stop being you and turn into something else, or you'll suffer interminable, intolerable boredom. If you stop being you, of course, do you really care what happens? Or, in some ways, morally, is it even your decision to make? As an example... One kind of immortality could just be that you get reincarnated every 80 years inside another human, with no memory of what came before. If there's no continuity there of your consciousness, do you really mind if this is true or not? I mean, from my personal perspective, which finishes after 80 years, it's pretty much indistinguishable from someone else being born the instant I die. And there you go. This is William's view that there's a fundamental contradiction in the idea of eternal life that means you either don't really live forever, or you're consigned to an eternity of suffering and boredom. In either case, you can argue that the goods on sale aren't really what they're advertised as. Caveat emptor. Which then comes back to my argument with the philosopher about utilitarianism. Remember, I was worried about the prospect of infinite suffering. He told me that the afterlife would definitely be good, so just shut up and drink the elixir already. But it seems to me that the only way it could be good is if you were willing to cheat the first requirement, that you remain somehow you. At some point, if I were immortal, I would suffer. So I have to cease to be myself, at which point you can argue about whether or not I'm really immortal, or just that something continues for all eternity, even if there's no through line to the guy who spent an evening typing all of this wild speculation up, and an afternoon taping it for you guys. So obviously this is all extremely open-ended and speculative, but here are some of my reflections on the puzzle. If you have some more, I'd really love to hear about them. Uh, please share them with me, it would be great to hear.
So an interesting point is when you think about transhumanists who are worried about superintelligent AI that might, for example, simulate human minds in various different situations. So here we could imagine a simulation lasting for billions, if not trillions, of subjective years. But it's not quite the same, because most of these people live in a universe constrained by the laws of physics, rather than the philosophical, hypothetical universe that this puzzle is set in. Imagine such an AI decides to convert all of the reachable matter and energy in the universe into raw calculating power, and that raw calculating power is entirely devoted to simulating one human brain experiencing various things from their perspective for as long as possible. Even this is not infinite, because there's a finite amount of energy that the AI can access, thanks to things like the light speed limit and the second law of thermodynamics and so on. So this problem really belongs to the related category of incredibly long lives. But of course the difference between an unbelievably long amount of time and infinity is still infinity. Which is where this really comes to bear for me, anyway. Another thing that sort of struck me was how this is related to antinatalism. There were lots of forms of this philosophy, but in short, I think you can sum it up in the way that the ancient Greeks had it, which basically just said, it's better to have never been born at all. Because life probably contains more suffering and misery and heartache and loss than it can possibly contain happiness, the contention here is that you'd end up with more, or at least you'd end up suffering less, if you had never been born at all. This isn't quite the same thing as saying we should all kill ourselves, as the antinatalists are at pain to admit. Perhaps the sad-sack antinatalists would be cheered up at the prospect of creating an immortality where, somehow or other, their grim and dismal calculations about the net balance of good things and bad things in human life would no longer apply. But I imagine that they would argue that to do so stops us from being human at all, because in the antinatalist world, it's almost like an intrinsic property of being human that the amount of bad things that can happen outweighs the amount of good things. And then we're back to kind of violating one of the ideas of this immortality. So one thing that immediately struck me about this was that people don't really take infinity seriously at all. In fact, in some ways, it's impossible to take infinity seriously because it becomes absurd. Multiplying any finite quantity by infinity gives you infinity again, which is what makes this so absurd. As an example, there is some tiny, tiny, tiny probability that random fluctuations of atoms and molecules so happen to occur in such a way that they assemble, instantaneously, a fully working, fully conscious human brain. There has to be some, albeit vanishingly small, probability that this would happen. For more on this idea, look into Boltzmann brains, and eventually your own non-Boltzmann brain is likely to melt. This would probably make for a fun episode some other time. Given truly infinite time, and a universe that doesn't eventually succumb to boring heat death, even ridiculously improbable things like this will happen. In fact, they will happen infinitely many times. Everything that can possibly happen will happen infinitely many times. That's what true infinity means. How can we possibly, possibly consign ourselves to such an absurd, abysmal fate? I mean... Even if you are positive about the range of possibilities that can occur in the universe, and for you, in immortality, is there not some chance that after the ten millionth time everything's happened, you might start to get a little bit bored of it? And even then, you'd have infinitely many 
to look forward to. Surely any notion with a human with our natural maximum lifespan of around 100 years could really hope to be themselves into year million or more. It's just ridiculous. We don't even know how memory would work that far into the future. It's almost inconceivable. Our psychology is clearly not set up for immortality. So if we did somehow live these extraordinarily long lives, uh, for these extremely long periods of time, we would inevitably become something far removed from the standard human psychology. So this idea that life could just continue as it does now into the far, far future is in some ways I don't see how it's really worth thinking about. One example to make this particularly concrete is the observation that time seems to go quicker when you get older, which is increasingly true from my perspective, as you have more to compare the world to and your own personal experiences to, and maybe they get less varied and there's less new things that you experience. The subjective length of time that each year is feels like a shorter duration. There's a great joke about this topic in Catch-22 where one of the characters, Yossarian, remarks to Dunbar that being bored causes his perception of time to slow down, something we've all experienced. Consequently, he says, being friends with you is great because I want to live forever. Most of us have this somewhat ameliorated by the way we live, particularly if you believe the Gallup survey that says that two-thirds of workers are either disengaged or actively disengaged from their jobs. But nevertheless, it does seem to be true in most people's experience. And how does this work in the millionth, the billionth, the trillionth year of existence? Maybe it actually converges, and thousands upon thousands of years just seem to flip past from your perspective, such that after a while, you're barely experiencing the passage of time at all. Eons are just passing you by. But it does seem to me like an awful lot of suffering would be involved and pretty quickly compared to what genuine infinity would be like. Maybe you'd enjoy it for a few thousand years, and then it would start to get old. What would life be like in such a state? Unable to change, unable to grow, unable to progress, endlessly moving through the same uncountable infinity. If you're to remain the same person, then you're stuck with your character flaws forever. Regardless of your temperament, it feels like things must eventually stop affecting and changing you in any way. You must reach some kind of steady state in infinite time. It's like the old Lenin quote about the Russian Revolution. There are decades when nothing happens, and weeks when decades happen. Except, in the case of immortality, you end up stuck with eternity, in which nothing happens. I give the average person a million years before they go completely insane, and if you think you're not going to get bored in a million years, don't worry, there's time. Thomas Nagel, who was apparently an American philosopher who wrote in response and in favour of this immortal proposition, suggested that he wouldn't get bored so easily as Williams, who thought it was a bad idea. I feel like that's just not taking infinity seriously. Infinity, true infinity true, real infinity, is always bigger than you think it is. That's kind of the point. When you think about immortality, you're probably imagining a really, really long time, more than you're imagining infinity, because in a lot of ways, it just becomes impossible to conceive of. So, there we go. This was, depending on your point of view, a ridiculous tangent filled with ill-defined questions and flimsy logic, or an interesting rabbit hole to speculate wildly about. At any rate, I hope that you enjoyed it, and if you don't feel like you wasted too much of eternity or mortality listening to it, that will be a good thing. If you have other opinions, if you have your own answer to the question of immortality, if you'd rather that I was talking about something else, get in touch with me on the website www.physicspodcast.com. There's a contact form that you can go to. It goes straight to my email. I read them and reply to all of the ones that I don't deem too terrifying. So that's a good way to go. There's also Twitter at PhysicsPod and Facebook Physical Attraction. Our theme music is by Melody Sheep. We'll be back soon with something probably a little bit less out there than this episode. Until next time, then. Take care.